0: I am David King. My current position is as Special Representative to the Foreign Secretary in the UK on Climate Change. For seven years, between 2000 and 2007, I was Chief Scientific Advisor And in that period, I was, I think, heavily responsible for raising the profile of the impacts of climate change in the British government. This job is uh, very heavily focused around the negotiations for an international treaty that we're planning to achieve in December 2015, next year in Paris, the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change. And this is the big moment to achieve a global agreement. I believe this is the world's biggest diplomatic challenge. uh, I'm even going to say the the biggest diplomatic challenge of all time.
1: And as you engage with, with governments and others around the world, where do you see the most positive action being taken to address climate change?
0: Britain set in train the the process and I think it's fair to say that we lead the world uh, through our Climate Change Act in 2008. I was one of the players behind the generation of that act and in that act, the British government with an all-party agreement uh, agreed to reduce its emissions by 80% by 2050 and also agreed that we should have four yearly carbon budgets going out towards that date so that we could make sure that we were on target. The carbon budgets are set out by a climate change committee and a climate change office, and we have carbon budgets to date until 2028, and they are currently working on the budget for 2032. So Britain... I would say leads the world because we've got this very detailed parliamentary process built in uh, and it's it's worth saying that for us that was very heavily pushed on us the the carbon budget budgets into the future by the private sector, saying that if they invest in low carbon energy futures, they want certainty that 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 is going to be the process into the future um when we look outside. Britain, then European Union, uh, um, has adopted very close to the British position. Uh, The European commissioners have agreed uh, to recommend to the council, which happens to be meeting today, the Council of Prime Ministers and Heads of State, that we should, across Europe, reduce our emissions by 40% by 2030. And that will be our contribution that we will take forward to the international negotiations so the 27 nations of europe are leading the way with that uh, announcement mexico uh, you may be surprised to hear has uh, in effect passed a parliamentary process which is very similar to the british process and also commits their future governments to long-term Uh, uh, programs of reduction of carbon dioxide emissions. Um, We are beginning to see actions in many of the uh, developing countries around the world, uh, countries that uh, include South Africa and Indonesia and Brazil. Uh, Many, many countries are already enforcing uh, low-carbon futures and avoided deforestation actions. That's not to say there isn't more to be done. There's a massive amount more to be done. But countries are aligning themselves. Russia, for example. President Putin, in November last year, made the first ever announcement of a presidential decree on climate change, stating that Russia will reduce its emissions of carbon dioxide by 27% by 2020, compared with 1990 levels. Um, So I I think that there is a good deal of action, um, but as I say, um, a considerable amount of way to go before we can be confident about an agreement in Paris in 2015 that matches up to the nature of the challenge.
1: So do you still believe that it is possible for global warming to stay below 2 degrees?
0: Let me answer that by saying what is needed to keep within that target, because the scientific panel, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, the several thousand scientists who have recently put in their latest report, have phrased this in very stark terms. At the moment, globally, greenhouse gases are increasing by 1.8% per annum, and we have been doing this for the last 10 to 15 years. If we carry on burning fossil fuels and increasing greenhouse gases at that rate, at that increasing rate, uh, by 2043, we would have completely consumed our carbon budget and would have to drop to zero emissions instantly uh, by uh, uh, 2044 if we were going to stay within that two degrees centigrade limit. Now what this means is that this is now a very urgent problem. If we do get good agreement in Paris in 2015 uh, and if that agreement really produces the results in 2020, starting in 2020 then we can reduce emissions starting in 2020 at a rate of 3.2% per annum and stay within our carbon budget. So we've got That's the nature of the challenge. By 2020, we have to switch from increasing emissions across the world at 1.8% per annum to decreasing at 3.2% per annum. That's a very big challenge, but that is what margin we're left with in managing this very, very important problem.
1: Mm. I can feel myself having a reaction to what you're saying. Um, Kevin Anderson argues that it's impossible adequately to respond to climate change and have economic growth. Where do you stand on this?
0: Um, I think it will be impossible to have economic growth if we allow climate change to continue. And I, I would say this with a great deal of certainty. If we look at the world we're likely to go into, um, as we move forward, um, if we don't manage this problem, uh, we are looking at a world in which by the end of the century we may have reached a 4.5 degree centigrade temperature rise, sea levels rising by 75 centimetres to a metre. We would be seeing major cities around the world, including London, under severe threat of continuation. Um, and the loss of uh, farming and hence the uh, ability to produce food and many, many other parameters, fresh water challenges, all of these challenges mean that it is simply pie in the sky to, to talk about growing our GDP under those circumstances. Let me just paint a picture around the issue of environmental migration. For countries that are low lying, such as the small island states, uh, such as Britain uh, and uh, Bangladesh, as the sea level rises, the civilization on those areas of land, the populations will have to withdraw to higher land. Um, And in, in Bangladesh, we're talking about an area of the world that is very densely populated. And it is highly likely, therefore, that from all these island states and countries like Bangladesh, there will be an environmental migration at a level we have never seen before. Now, this is going to cause all sorts of disturbance to the global economy. Um, we see a beginnings of this kind of action in the uh, Arab Spring, where this rapid rise in food prices coupled with the rise in uh, mineral prices and uh, oil prices, all giving a threefold increase in a few years in these prices, caused real concern about people's ability to buy the food that they need to continue to live. So I, I think that the notion of continued GDP rise in the face of the impact of extreme weather events, is, uh, is very unrealistic.
1: Uh, you paint a very stark, a very clear picture, but one that it's very difficult for governments to uh, take on board or to acknowledge. Do you think that politicians are are, are recognising the description that you just gave?
0: Well I think there's some good news there. Um, The the Foreign Secretary certainly recognizes that and in making my appointment to this role he was in a a very clear position of saying I want to underline my commitment to this challenge. Uh, His counterpart in the United States John Kerry has been making around the world some quite remarkable speeches about what he considers to be the biggest challenge our civilization has been faced with. He's describing this, uh, uh, just to catch the attention of people, as uh, uh, rather like a very large nuclear weapon that we're sitting on. So he, he feels that this is something that the world needs to act on as i say president putin and this may be a big surprise has made a clear statement about climate change our own prime minister recently underscored the the british all-party agreement in 2008 with his statement about the floods and the impact of climate change here in britain so i I think there there are good signs Um, amongst the developing countries i would say there's some extraordinarily good leaders who, who see the problems very clearly. Um, Ban Ki-moon has called for a meeting of heads of states in September uh, in New York. And this is going to be an opportunity for those voices who are at the helm, those people who are in a leadership position to express their views clearly to the international community.
1: In our yes. recent interview with Miles Allen, he argued that only a huge rollout of carbon capture and storage could keep global warming below two degrees. Uh, is he right to put so much faith in a, in a relatively untested and still experimental technology?
0: Well, I don't think he's right. I think Miles is, uh, is, is wrong on this issue um, because I, I, I fear that uh, we should not um, pursue a technology as a potential solution before we know that we can deliver it as a solution. We know that carbon capture and storage from uh, uh, power stations that are run by coal is uh, a doable process. And in particular, we know that we can capture the carbon dioxide and we can store it in... Uh, oil fields that are uh, depleted of oil Uh, and the oil companies have been using carbon dioxide in those oil fields to store uh, carbon dioxide but in particular to extract the remaining oil from them. So that's doable but there's not enough room in those particular underground caverns to contain the amount of carbon dioxide that we are emitting. We therefore have to shift over to non-saline aquifers. Non-saline because we need, uh, sorry, saline aquifers. We need non-saline aquifers for the fresh water, which we're rapidly running into short supply across the world for. Um, So we need to be using non-saline aquifers. Sorry, repeat, we need to be using saline aquifers for carbon dioxide capture and storage, and that's, As yet an untested uh, business in other words we we don't really know once we've we put the carbon dioxide down there whether we can securely cap um, the the stores incidentally and I think this is another important part of this story the cost of carbon dioxide capture and storage is so high, and the energy used in the process is so high. We're talking about 30% of the output of a coal-fired power station going into the capture and storage process. The cost is so high that it would probably mean that coal-fired power stations would have to be shut down because other forms of energy are rapidly becoming very competitive. And this is the bit that Miles Allen, I think, is completely missing out on. If we look at the cost today of the installation of photovoltaic uh, systems, it is five times cheaper to install photovoltaics today than it was 10 years ago. What has happened is that the feed in tariffs, first introduced in Germany in 1989, and then Rapidly spreading across the European Union have meant that the vol- has meant that the volume of production of photovoltaics has increased year on year. With every doubling of production, the cost has come down 17% on average. Today, in many parts of the world where solar energy is available, in other words, in sunny climates, the use of solar photovoltaics is already competitive in producing electricity on the grid. So who would use coal with carbon capture and storage if you could rather use a renewable such as photovoltaics? Now, there is a problem with photovoltaics, as with wind, that these are intermittent sources. And a much more important piece of technology to focus on is the development of large-scale energy storage. And that, in my view, is the Cinderella of research. I would focus heavily on developing large-scale energy storage because it would be transformative. If you look at India today, I believe that India would rapidly switch across. They can use deserts in Rajasthan as the source of uh, electricity from photovoltaics, they would rapidly move across to that development rather than continuing the process of coal mining. Coal miners still dying every year. And at the same time, pollution levels in the atmosphere in India and in China are so high that both countries are trying to see how they can avoid coal usage. So I I think this is a, um, a, 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 a danger that we focus on the wrong expenditure in terms of technologies that can be transformative.
1: And given the (laughs) huge benefits that you've just described that could be derived from storage technology, um, why is the investment not and the focus not going in that direction?
0: Right. So I I think that's a very good question, and I believe the answer is that the feed-in tariffs were uh, uh, meant to provide the solution that is appearing, which is the lowering cost of installation of uh, of the uh, energy sources. It's not been as efficient with wind. With wind, the figure is more like seven or eight percent full with every doubling of, uh, of production. Um, but I, I, I think that the, none of the mechanisms we've put in place have pulled energy storage technologies through into the marketplace. So Uh, A group of us are very keen to establish a major new program, a global program of research, publicly funded and privately funded, but I stress publicly funded research aimed at developing the uh, storage capacity that we need. And this should be an effort from the research and development end, through the demonstration part of the process, and into deployment. In other words, I would like to see heavily subsidized deployment of large-scale energy storage as it becomes available in the marketplace so that once again the cost can be brought down as the volume of deployment goes up and that will then become a, a worldwide facility. By the way, and I think this is very important. Most villages in Africa and India are off the electricity grid. The people in those villages, millions of people, hundreds of millions of people without any electricity at all. Getting them, those villages onto the grid is extremely expensive, which is why the governments of those parts of the world have not yet extended into those villages. But the cost of installing photovoltaics with microgrids in those villages is on average about three times lower, even at today's photovoltaic prices. Now, this means there's another big market for photovoltaics emerging in those two countries, in those two parts of the world. And once again, volume will keep going up and the cost of photovoltaic installation will fall well below the cost of installing energy systems based on fossil fuels so i think there's a it's not pie in the sky there's a very real future for sun power to become the major form of energy production in the future now you couple that with the availability of large-scale energy storage and you're moving to a position where we can say we can actually crack this problem
1: and where should leadership on climate change be coming from? I mean, we've talked quite a lot about government, but there's also business and communities. I'm, I'm particularly interested in the role you see communities as having.
0: right, so so uh, first of all, let me say there are a number of really outstanding business leaders who who get this whole message and who are uh, um, advocates. Of action on climate change and are, are doing it within their own companies, and this is extremely important because the, it, it helps politicians enormously to be able to say that the private sector is uh, is supportive of of their actions. Uh, in terms of of the the public, uh, we we talked earlier about individual leaders in the political scene. And leaders of the sort of visionary capability of a Mandela or a Gorbachev are actually in short supply. Um, what, what is there's an almost empty stage for international political leaders to step onto and really show the way forward to the rest of us. But what will generate people to move onto that stage, I have no doubt, is public opinion. And so, it is critically important uh, that, that the NGOs and that the the public voice is actually heard through the media. I think that um, it, one, one could hardly overemphasize the importance of this. In the run-up to Copenhagen, uh, we, I think, had a good position across the media in Western countries. In Many developing parts of the world, it's still quite good. But the um, arrival of the the lobbies against climate change has seemed to turn the media's attention away from the enormous challenge of this position. We We are talking about something that the planet has never had to face up to before because it requires joint action by all communities by all societies by all countries to manage this problem we've never been in that position before I think that the the challenge therefore for the political system is so large that it needs the push and backup from the public voice
1: and in, and in relation to that if I mean we found that having access to information about climate change doesn't necessarily engage people in a response. And similarly, um, being exposed to extreme weather events also doesn't always have that impact. I wondered what you thought uh, was the most effective way of engaging the public with this issue.
0: Well, I think you're quite right, although uh, there are many counter-examples. So I think it's fair to say that Many people understand uh, the business of the floods and climate change being related in the UK. Uh, And just to stress that for a moment, in 2004, I put in a report to to government as chief scientific advisor from a very large-scale foresight study on flooding risks to the United Kingdom and what we needed to do about it. Now, that, that report was prepared by about 110 scientists, engineers, climate scientists included, uh, social scientists, and it took them three years to, to reach their conclusions. And uh, the conclusion was, was relatively stark. It was that we needed to improve our flood defences. Uh, we needed to improve water management because the biggest risk to Brit the British Isles from climate change would be from flooding uh, uh, this side of the end of the century. Now, the floods that recently happened were just the kind of event that we were talking about managing risk to. And I, I think it's fair to say that many of our proposals were put in place and most of the country's major assets were actually saved as a result of that. Now, anyone who studies this ought to know that that is the case. We we probably have 10 to 15 billion pounds of damage, but it could have been hundreds of billions of pounds of damage if we hadn't have stopped the floods from going into our major cities, such as London, uh, and into our major assets. So that that is quite important to somehow dig that message out and get it into the public domain. Um, but if you... Take a counterexample: example, um, the new government in Australia has maintained the commitment to reduce their emissions of carbon dioxide by 2020 by 5%, but nevertheless are at the moment very slow to take action on climate change and to recognize the relationship between the extraordinarily hot summer that they've just had uh, in South Australia, the highest temperatures ever recorded in South Australia in Melbourne. And this follows 10 to 15 years of drought and high temperatures in that region, which is, if you go to the climate science predictions, precisely what they were predicting. So I, I think that you're quite right. The extreme weather events don't always lead to uh, the conclusion that people understand the nature of the challenge um russia on the other hand and i'm swinging around now the the very high the severe summer in in moscow and the uh, melting of the permafrost in in russia has been a wake-up call we may say that the hot summer in in russia was such an extreme event that it can't all be attributed to climate change Of course, that is true, but nevertheless, it was an indicator to the Russian population that climate change is a severe threat to the Russian people. It's not just a warmer climate is going to be nicer for them. It's going to mean longer growing seasons, which is what was said before. Just as in in Britain, we can't say that climate science will be better for us because we'll Uh, grow wine that'll be competitive with France and Spain, however nice that'll be, we see that actually the floods are so counterproductive that uh, the impacts are more severe. So I think that extreme weather events, which are likely to increase in frequency as we move forward in time, are a wake-up call, but aren't always read in that way, just as you say.
1: You mentioned the importance of um, getting this dis- this issue discussed in a meaningful way in the mainstream media. Uh, the BBC's recent coverage of climate change seems still to be labouring under the assumption that balance means giving a platform to climate sceptics. Is this still appropriate?
0: No, of course it's not appropriate. I mean, it, it, it's a remarkable. We're in a situation where... of the climate science community believe that climate change is happening and is due to man's influence, uh, mankind's influence over the last 50 years. And they say that this, they're able to say with 95% certainty. Um, If we said this, say, about um, a new vaccine arriving to prevent some uh, transmittable disease, Uh, And the scientific community said they were 95% certain that this would stop the transmission of that disease. I doubt that you would have an outcry uh, against the scientific community of the kind that has happened here. It is, in my view, quite extraordinary that we can still try to get a so-called balanced view between the clear scientific opinion and the people who... Mostly are not even close to the science themselves I, I find it quite remarkable
1: um, as you know, our theme this month has been living with climate change as as someone who works with this issue every day how do you How do you deal with it? How do you cope with the depth and the enormity of the issue and and deal with it emotionally
0: well i I think that um, i I cope by uh, having a very exhausting schedule um, I've, I've met with uh, delegations from uh, n- n- nine different countries this year uh, sorry ten different countries this year and uh, and so my my waking hours are actually swe- uh, spent uh, um, in negotiations and working with um, uh, leaders in other countries negotiating teams Um, talking to uh, leaders of NGOs Uh, when I make uh, visits to other countries. So, for example, to India, I met with uh, leaders of major NGOs. I spoke to the uh, uh, parliament, the Indian parliament. I met the uh, head of planning, the planning commission in India, met the key ministers, and uh, I uh, also... Uh, met with uh, a whole range of other leaders including people at the Bombay Stock Exchange where I gave an address. So I don't confine myself to the the political leaders but try to meet as many of the influences as I can on these trips.
1: And you're saying that you find uh, emotional support from seeing that that breadth of... Uh, interest in the issue and the commitment to the issue. Yes,
0: exactly. I mean, I, I think that uh, because I'm I'm so deeply involved in in the actions, and I think obviously what is critical is getting positive feedback, and uh, I am getting positive feedback wherever I go, um, but this isn't a uh, a stress free life I'm describing. Um, I I. Might also just add, however, I'm a bit of a stress-free zone. I still sleep well at night.
1: (laughs) That's good to hear. (laughs) Um, Thank you very much, Sir David. Thank you for your time. And I think there's many of us listening to this interview will be wishing you strength and uh, uh, success in your efforts towards uh, the discussions in Paris next year.
0: Uh, Sarah, thank you so much. I've enjoyed it.